0: Me 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 me. Hello, everybody, and welcome to. Let's go. Let's go. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Word on the Hill podcast. This is the Lanky Guys. My name is Scott Powell.
1: I'm Father Peter Maset, and my job on this podcast, if you've never tuned in, is to. Try to uh, thwart all academic pursuits in pursuit of humor. Yes, while maintaining the ability to draw profound conclusions. Humor might be a stretch for
0: some <laughs> for some of the some of the incidents.
1: If you have never listened to the uh, podcast before, welcome well, to the. We're podcast. sorry. We're sorry that you uh, have to tune to experience. in. Yeah, that at this particular moment in, in time. But what we do, in, at the on the word of the hill, um, is we attempt to draw the context. Of all of the four readings of scripture into the uh, consistent whole, a singular uh, reality. Sometimes we're quite successful, and sometimes we're not. But we make the attempt regardless. We're always
0: successful th- at, at 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 reflect. Well, okay, fair enough.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. Is that we let's be honest, we give it our very best, and the Holy Spirit does the rest. Most of the
0: time, we do our very best. Oh, did you just mean to do that little ride? Yeah, was that purposeful? Yeah, it's oh, so nerdy. It's like a, it's like a. It's like one of those little cards that your picture, framed pictures you'd find next to the bathroom in somebody's house. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Dude, you know Let, what? Next to the footprints prayer, Yeah, which you, is the one dude. you always find in a, in a Christian bathroom. Dude, that's the best. You just
1: honored me. I mean, like, this Thank is you. the thing is like, dude, if I could be at, like, if I could have something that was so popular that it ended up in thrift stores as <laughs> trash, I would be... <laughs> <laughs> like literally like I'm a hallmark level at that yeah, point dude. Yeah,
0: you are. Well, not quite a hallmark level, but maybe uh oh, maybe just, uh what's that what's Crosswalk bookstores or whatever it's called?
1: Crosswalk. Oh
0: boy. Um it is the 25th Sunday in Ordinary Time. And um I'm just jumping right in. And I got I, a lot to say. We have a lot to say. And um the first reading is from Amos. Well, eight. are we just you that's where you usually derail me. And you're like, we're not jumping in. I'm going to say something dumb. <laughs> Mom, I'm sorry. This
1: is, dude, you're so habituated that you just derailed yourself.
0: I didn't know what to do. <laughs> I was paralyzed. <laughs> wow. All right. The first reading. is coming... for... <laughs> yeah, you, go, you go for okay, it. Okay. It's Amos 8, 4 through 7. Okay, Amos 8, 4 through 7. Good. Our responsorial psalm is coming from Psalm 113, verses 1 through 2, 4 through 6, 7 through 8. And then the response itself is... Wait, what?
1: 1A, 7B. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is really a hodgepodge. Yeah, it is. All right. Second reading is
1: from uh, the singular of Timothy rather than the duality of Timothy. I don't know. It's
0: just the first. It's okay, sequential. See. Yeah. Not not plural or singular. It's, it's or, an ordinal number. It's Timothy
1: 2, 1 through 8. Thank you.
0: Anyway, our gospel, have I said it yet? No. It's coming from Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. Which is coming hot on the heels of the prodigal son story.
1: And if you want to do the short version, you just add a zero to the first one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the 10, the 13. <laughs>
0: Only three verses. Come on. Dude, Sorry. Why am I so critical today? Dude, you, you know, I put in some work on this parable because this is a hard one.
1: Dude, I'll tell you, we're, everything's kind of focused towards Luke, but we've got, a, we've got a kind of journey there. We've got to actually take the stairway to heaven on this
0: one. Yeah, I was going to sing it but I'm not I'm not I'm not in that space today. And oh, okay. Scott's
1: buying a stairway to heaven. Amos. Famous Amos cookies were like the most delicious thing that I ate when I was in middle school, dude. Come on. Really? So this is what I know about Amos <laughs> is um Amos has some of the very the most simple language, most simple straightforward Hebrew within the scriptures because i do you know why because he was simple he was just a vine dresser like which like he was like the beater of figs or something (laughs) that was one thing i just remember like going through like
0: like (laughs) he's a farmer let's just let's just go with that there's a whole community it's sort of a vocation of people who are prophets some of them made it into the scripture some of them didn't but um there was there was a certain nobility to the prophets and you were a prophet if your father was a prophet and his father was a prophet and that kind of a thing it was almost like a little caste system amos makes a big deal about how he is not from that world he was not a prophet because his father was a prophet and he was schooled in the prophets and all these other things he was just a lowly farmer i'm a vine dresser from Tekoa, which is this place near bethlehem and god raised me up to come and do this job so i'm i'm sort of a he's a consummate outsider right Coming to speak truth and speak condemnation, really, into the insiders and the the leadership and the power structure of the time. Right. But it's significant that he is an outsider to that.
1: Yeah, and, and now he isn't he uh, like isn't he from the south going north or the north going south? Like I f- I forget because because he's cause from it, the south.
0: He's from the southern kingdom. So Tekoa is near Bethlehem. So we're in the southern kingdom. We're near Judea, Judea. Jerusalem, Tekoa, Tekoa, T E K O A. Is like our lady Kateri Tekoetha? <laughs> not even close. I like where you I like where you're going though. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but he's a prophet yet to the Northern Kingdom. He's 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 kind of always put in the same um, time frame-ish as Hosea, and he's juxtaposed with Hosea in some ways because Hosea gives all these warnings to the Northern Kingdom where there's a lot of hope. Amos doesn't seem to have much hope for them at all. It's pretty it's pretty devastating prophecies, right? Yeah. He's supposedly we're not sure. He's thought to be the earliest of the 12 written prophets.
1: Yeah. That's what I remember learning in seminary too. Yeah. Yeah. Come back to me
0: with all your heart. So what we're to, so the context we're dealing with. So he's from the south. He's coming to the north. Remember the northern kingdom. At one point they split off from the southern kingdom. Israel had the big civil war. And Amos's time in history is when the the northern kingdom is really flourishing. They're very powerful. They're very prosperous. They're very rich. They um, built their own temple. They built their own temple right in uh, Bethel. Right, the king's sanctuary to kind of counter the temple in the in the south God's actual temple. They have their own, um, you know, uh, uh, calendar and feast days and priesthood and gods and temples and this whole structure, and it's going really well for them. They're powerful, they're rich, they're well thought of. The nation of Assyria is not quite a superpower yet. But soon, within the next um, couple, you know, decades, generation or so, they're going to be a superpower who comes and sweeps in and destroys, brutalizes the Northern Kingdom, and that's one of the things that Amos is warning them against. Don't let this power go to your head. You've become rich and fat and lazy and oppressive, and everything else. And all you care about is your wealth, right?
1: I was, uh, I was thinking about how, um, how a couple of things that come to my mind, um, like the. Uh,
0: Hunger Games. <laughs> okay.
1: It's just like it's yes, rich he is and the, powerful. Yes, Amos is
0: the Katniss Everdeen of the ancient world. <laughs> that, was, that was the first image <laughs> There's your takeaway line. Yeah. The, the podcast. <laughs> but like doing it
1: with such force and conviction mm. that everybody's like, what is going on with this guy? And, and then B... He speaks something that's true, and we know, but like, he's really annoying. They really didn't like a famous Amos.
0: Most of the good prophets, I mean, all the prophets were good, but most of the good prophets, <laughs> one way to tell if a prophet is really doing his job is if everyone hates him, you <laughs> know, to be honest with you, because the word of God is tends to not be terribly popular.
1: You know, there, there's a certain paradigm within um, young priests that, that can actually creep in as well.
0: Yeah, I can see that. Whereas,
1: like the more you're I mean, you are disliked, the more effective have, you are. You shouldn't seek to have your whole parish hate you. I know, and that, and that's the problem. Is like you think, oh, if I'm re- if I'm preaching the word, then everybody's gonna like revolutionize. Right, right, right. But uh, but like we're also drawn into Jesus Christ. Like yeah. and this is actually this is this,
0: it is an it's a new age, and so. But even you, look at like Mother Teresa. I mean, I'm thinking of Saint Mother Teresa now, who's just canonized what two weeks ago or something like that. Yeah. And as her canonization drew up and was happening, like the whole world came out of the woodworks to talk about how terrible she is. And she's awful and scandalous and hates the poor and all this stuff. And you're like, oh my gosh, what is going on here? But in a certain sense, that's, that's a good sign there. The evil one's not happy that this, that this holy one is being held up in esteem. But, but then at the same time, it's like
1: if you ever want to have an example of like, like I think of the, the, there's a movie where somebody like did a good deed and they had an image in their mind and they all of a sudden were Mother Teresa
0: like helping the poor. <laughs> but that's the thing about it is that Mother Teresa for so long was just this, oh, she's a real Mother Teresa. It's almost, you know, a idiom it, idiomatic it, yeah, yeah. until the canonization came about. And then everyone's like, "Well, oh, well, you know, she was actually... I don't know if you heard any of that stuff. I feel no, like people... There was all sorts of all. stuff floating around and articles and TV things. It was on Facebook. It was all over and it was exploding about all these people coming out of the woodworks talking about how terrible she was. Wow. It, it was. I'm glad that you were insulated. Maybe you guys were insulated from that too. I read too many things.
1: You read a lot. Like, you keep me updated because I can't believe...
0: <laughs> that didn't make sense. No, it's okay. Anyway, we should just... <laughs> To move on. Okay, that was what a splice. We, that was a splice. No, they don't know that. They don't need to know, you the, need to art, know. the art of <laughs> podcasting and the, art, the artistry and the craftsmanship that goes into this. What are we talking about? Oh, my gosh. Amos. Okay, here's the thing. You were We were talking a few minutes ago before the podcast, and you mentioned a yoke, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. You talked about my, my you know a, a verse and shortening it down and creating a yoke. There's a famous saying about Amos. Famous Amos. Famous uh, Amos. Uh, come on. But,
1: I, it's... it's, it's the whole time
0: this has always uh, struck me and stuck with me um, it comes from the Babylonian Talmud and yes I am breaking out the Babylonian Talmud <laughs> wow it's from Makaoth 24b <laughs> no it is
1: dude you it's, are it's,
0: you, you, you just like went up on the cool no, scale dude it's, it's Rabbi Simulai but he's got this famous <laughs> it is, hold I'm up, hold not up. making can, jokes can you please say oh all gosh. that That all, the, it's the Babylonian it's from the Babylonian Talmud Makaoth 24b and it's a quote from Rabbi Simulai <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh, okay, and now okay, you I need ready? to
0: know, yeah. Okay, listen to this quote. And it it, it requires a little bit of unpacking, but I, I really love it because it 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 says something about Amos and what his what he's doing and what his task is and what his role in Israel and salvation history. I'm bacon. I'm bacon. I'm bacon. Father Peter has a big stuffed, oh, it's not a stuffed animal, it's a stuffed piece of bacon. <laughs> It's, it is the fattiest piece of stuffed animal bacon I've ever seen in my life. Okay, it's, just, so, it's mostly white. Yeah, Unpack it for me. Oh, my gosh. You, are you getting frustrated? Oh, I'm sorry. Are you frustrated that just <laughs> <this> derailed me? <laughs> Pardon me. Let me get back to task. <laughs> All right. Here's what Rabbi Simlai says. Are you ready? It's good. There were 613 commandments. So remember in the Old Testament, God gives 613 laws, right? Mm-hmm. We've talked about this before. So he says the 613 commandments that were given to Moses were reduced by David to 11, which is Psalm 15. And I have it here, and it's, um, you know, he who walks blamely and does what is right, speaks truth from his heart, does not slander with his tongue. He gives kind of this summation of the law, right, in Psalm 15. Then he says Isaiah reduced them to six. And he quotes from Isaiah chapter 33, in which he says... Yeah, 33:15. It's where Isaiah says, "He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of opp- uh, oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing bloodshed, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. And then he says, "Micah then reduced them to 3 laws." And that's Micah chapter 6 verse 8, and that's a famous one. It says, "He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with God." He's reduced it to three. Isaiah further reduced them down to two. And that's a quote from Isaiah, what is it? 56.1, which it says, keep justice and do righteousness, says the Lord. And then he says, finally came Amos and he reduced them all to one. And he quotes Amos chapter five, verse four. It says, seek me and live. And I mm. love that. Is this, because you, you were talking about yokes, Jesus mentions the idea of yokes in the New Testament the yoke every good rabbi had a yoke which was his basically one line summary statement of the entirety of the law how do you take these six hundred and thirteen laws all of salvation history all of these things that God has revealed yeah. and summarize it in one thing Amos in almost desperation to these people who do not think they need to be in desperation because they're they're wealthy and 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 you know, they have all these possessions and power and fat and goods and everything else. And he says, no, seek the Lord and live. Otherwise you won't. Right. Seek me and live. Which is sort of the theme that I'm going into all these readings with in a certain sense. But isn't that kind of cool? It is cool. And it's, what's
1: really powerful. I mean, I'll tell you the directness of that is like really intense.
0: Yeah. Imagine, imagine saying, seek me and live. Yeah. Well, from going to a person of profound power and wealth, from a nobody farmer going into that place of power and wealth and saying that, Right. you know, add a whole nother piece to that. And so what Isaiah said, or what Amos says, "Hear this, you who trample upon the needy and destroy the poor of the land. When will the new moon? When will the new moon be over? You ask that we may sell our grain and the Sabbath that we may display the wheat. That that line is sort of um, uh, emblematic of what's going on. They're waiting for the like, when will the Sabbath end so we can go back to work? And so we can start selling things and get richer. I'm sick of this dumb Sabbath. When can we open the store again and start to sell stuff? You know what I mean? They're taking sort of what God is doing and they're just in a hurry to, we'll diminish the ephah, add to the shekel, fix our scales for cheating. We will buy the lowly for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. Even the refuse of the wheat we will sell. Everything's got a price. In other words, everything's got a little price tag on it. That's the way that they look at the world and i think we are a culture in a lot of ways that everything has a price tag. bless you. thank you. you know what i mean? Yes. how can i how can i commercialize this? how can i sell this? how can i commercialize it? you know, and they're they're having a lot of success. but anyway, this is the culture that he's speaking into. I mean,
1: which is which is actually precisely what we're trying to not do with the podcast. like how so? We're not commercializing it. We're not we're not trying to make this an inaccessible reality.
0: Hold on one second, we have to pause from a word from our sponsors, trolley bright crawlers. <laughs> Pick up a bag today and rot your stomach. <laughs> End your teeth. End your teeth. Oh. Huh? Yeah, no, it is. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I totally derailed you and I forgot what we were talking about. That's okay. I,
1: I, I, I'm I kind of oddly, uh, like, I like the awkwardness today. Oh, do I'm you? Kinda, I kinda, I'm sure all the people love it. As well. <laughs> it's just like, you just stop talking and just look at somebody. And I'll tell you, that can make anything awkward.
0: Well, that is a good lead into the psalm. <laughs> Does that well, make, is that fair about it, Amos?
1: I think it is really fair. I mean... And, uh, and
0: again, this is a
1: people who... Isn't that the temptation of a city? is the, the unending commercialization, like, like how can I
0: take advantage of what's right in front of me? It's, it's, it's opportunisms. Well, you gave a great homily this weekend, this past weekend about the nature of a city and a community. And what is right. a city for the nature of a city is to build community. And in much of our mindset nowadays, in this part of the world, a city is for commerce, not right. for community. Right. I, um, I think it was Monsignor Swetland. If you remember him, he, uh, Had a great line, or not even a line, just kind of a schema. He said, "You can kind of watch where our culture has gone by looking at cities and the way that cities are structured." So, in the beginning, early on, you know, even in Europe and stuff, what's the? If you go to Europe and you were you did the Camino a number of times, right? What's the centerpiece of every city in Europe? The plaza in front of the church. The church. Actually, there's a shift historically. So, in the beginning, every city, every town, every village had the church. It's in the middle. You can see it. You know, it's higher than everything else. It draws everybody in. The centerpiece, it tells you where their hearts are. Their centerpiece is worship. That is what grounds the town. Right. You move on a little bit historically, and the center of the city becomes the square, which is a little bit apart from the church. And you see a little bit of oh. more movement toward the people, not God as much, and commerce. And then you come to our country and our, our sort of life. You know, again, we have a lot of little small towns that were founded around the church, But then, you know, you move into, I don't know, the 1800s, 1900s. What's the centerpiece of most towns? It's Main Main Street, Street, right? Where the stores are, where the commerce are. But nowadays, if you go into most suburbs or towns, suburbs around our country, what's at the center of most of our suburbs? The mall or the, the park? You can't find a center. Oh, yeah. And that's kind of his point. Like, you see this movement from God... To ourselves, to commerce, to actually, we don't have a center anymore. Most towns don't have a center. Most suburbs, you know, things like that. You can't find the centerpiece. It's just sort of this amorphous blob that keeps going. I wonder. It's interesting. If, I wonder if that's actually part of the
1: issue with the the millennial move to the urban areas. To like Oh, I
0: missed the courthouse was in there. I think that was step yeah. two, it
1: was the courthouse and sort of the law and civil-
0: civicness. Dude, I just
1: it's so funny. I just did a motorcycle trip from Boulder to Buffalo, New York and I, b2b and and uh, you pass through town after town after town and i can actually point to all of these different towns where mm. you'd have the the church in the middle or then you'd have the yeah. park and yeah. and, the, and the bandstand yeah. in the middle where you'd have like uh those things but then that gets replaced by uh well th- then the commercialization or right directly around that yes. happens but then all of a sudden the courthouse comes in yeah until finally you're just passing through Neighborhood after neighborhood after neighborhood. with Strip mall, mall and
0: strip mall, and, and, and you don't know where the center is because yeah. there is no center anymore. Yeah. It's fascinating, isn't it? It's very interesting. So anyway, that that being said, again, we get to Psalm 113. Praise the Lord who lifts up the poor. These readings are all about civicness and money. Civicness? I don't know if civicness is a word. Civility? Yeah, not civility in the sense that we usually think about it, though. Like cities, C- civility. I know, that was, kind of that was a joke, actually. But... Oh, it was a good one yeah i mean hilarious uh, thanks <laughs> <laughs> awkward but civicness and and i can't think of a word and and money right yeah. yeah. so the
1: the the, the, the city
0: <laughs> the polis but not really the city but the idea of us within the city our life in in a city yeah the polis yeah the polis perhaps so then praise the Lord who lifts up the poor. And so the psalm is, is reminding us as we live in the city, as we experience wealth, certainly in our culture, as the Northern Kingdom is experiencing this wealth, it's all happening at the expense of the poor. It's happening at the expense of humanity, right? You are trampling the poor. You're buying and selling people. That's why you're rich. That's why all these things are happening. That's what Amos is saying to the Northern Kingdom. And I think that happens often with us too. I mean, what... To what degree is our wealth dependent on use of other people in one way or another? You know, either we see them as a number or we see them as a customer or whatever it is to the degree that we begin to use people so that we can gain our prestige and our wealth and our standing, build our cities, build our communities, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. This is what the Northern Kingdom is doing. And what Amos is saying is you need to turn from that, seek the Lord, and then you will live. Otherwise, you will not. And they don't believe them because they're at the height of wealth. They're at the height of power. Why should we believe you? Everything is great. How can you believe a storm is coming when the sky is crystal clear, right? Right. If sometimes you can't see the storm over the horizon. That's their problem. Mm. Which I don't think is actually our problem in this in this culture that we live in anymore. We can see the clouds building.
1: I mean, you see, you see that with all the apocalyptic movies and literature, you can yeah. see it with uh, the re- religious fatalism, with the... Yeah. With the um, uh, the impending doom of uh, catastrophic uh, climactic change and doom and economic devastation, like 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 it's been it's uh, the wars and rumors of wars are sure
0: pouring forth. I mean, even just you look at the election, and everybody's like, "We're doomed." Yeah, no, it is. Which is, again, what Amos is trying to say is, no, put your trust in God. Right. Yes, if you put your trust in your political structures and your leaders and your kings and your princes, yes, you are doomed. If you put your trust in God, you are not. But all of these powers are, are destined to fail, which it, actually does lead us to first Timothy. Well, yeah, I mean, but this is this is the this is the
1: divine a inver- divine inversion that we see. Okay. So, uh verse 7 and 8. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts Wait, so- where are you? I'm li- Are you in the Psalm, the Psalm 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 113. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit or the with princes. the dunghill, some translations oh, say. Yeah. <laughs> to make <laughs> them sit on. with princes and the princes of his people.
0: Which is, what is Amos doing? He's somebody from, he's the lowly from the ash heap coming to sitting with the princes. That's the princes exactly. don't want him there, but he's doing it nonetheless. <laughs> <laughs> and who are we talking about 3,000 years later? The princes and the kings or Amos? Dude, famous We're talking Amos. about Amos. Which is telling, isn't it?
1: It is really telling, and and like that divine inversion is really beautiful. Actually, mm. I mean, it's like Mother Teresa. What? Where did she go? Heaven? No, I mean she went oh. to, to the depth of human depravity. And, 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 and now he, you know what it feels like to be me. You're <laughs> I, trying to
0: make a profound point, are you?
1: <laughs> <laughs> actually, I was just reflecting on it while I was trying to get through those verses. I was like, this is really hard.
0: I was like, gosh, I'm really impressed with his ability to stick to itiveness. Sorry, First, First Timothy. <laughs> is a letter, and again, I don't remember if we've talked about this in weeks past. It's a letter written from Paul to Timothy, giving him instructions on what it means to be a bishop. Absolutely. In Ephesus is where he is at this moment. But it's also a letter that's meant to be... It actually follows the form of... uh, And there was a term for it that's slipping my mind right now. But there was a kind of letter that, that Caesar would send to his governors and his officials that was to be read to the city... So that everyone understood the authority that Caesar is giving this individual. Mm. So this letter is follows the exact same structure that Caesar would have used. Yeah. And it's meant to be read in the mass to the congregation as Paul is giving these instructions to Timothy to be their spiritual shepherd. They're all supposed to hear all of this stuff as well. Part, partially as a way of Paul saying, yeah, no, he is the guy who's in charge. Because I put him there. Here's all my words. Here's my instructions to him. Just so you can hear and be in on it and know to listen to him. That's Does good that management. Sense? It is good management. It's a good It's a good way of doing it. Um, but what he says in this particular part is, is a little bit shocking. Again, remembering that they're living. Now, they're in Ephesus. That's where Timothy is. But again, this is part of the Roman Empire. And the church is about to and has slowly started to enter into one of the worst persecutions the church had ever seen. And knowing that context and that backdrop should actually change the way we read this. So what he says is, first of all, I ask that supplications, prayers, petitions, and thanksgiving be offered for everyone, for kings, and for all those in authority, that we may lead a quiet and tranquil life in all devotion and dignity. It's good and pleasing to God that our Savior, to God our Savior, who yes. wills everyone be saved, that they all come to the knowledge of truth. For there's one God, one mediator, et cetera, et cetera. You can read this and be like, man, how naive is Paul? Man, let's just go and pray and hope for the best. And if we pray for our kings and our governors, then we'll live in peace and tranquility. Paul, don't you understand the culture we live in? Don't you understand the United States? Don't you understand the persecution that we face? Don't you understand anything well, yeah, he did because he lived in the midst of the most bloodthirsty empire the world had ever seen. Yeah, he gets it. And he's not some naive guy that's like, oh, Caesar really likes us. And if we're just nice to him, then he'll let us all live. No, Paul sees the persecution that's spreading all over the empire. Paul's concern is twofold. Number one, to remind the people as bad as the empire gets, as bad as se- Nero's about to come to power for Pete's sake. He might already be in power. I forget the timeline. Who, again, is a, he's so bloodthirsty. Right. But Paul is reminding them, look, he's not in control, God is in control, so pray for him. Because we err, and and again, I'm thinking about our political season, we err when we make human beings and our politicians into the enemy. The enemy is the enemy, the evil one is the enemy. God is king, the evil one is our enemy, and there are people who fall into the evil one's traps, but to make them the enemy is the mistake that the enemy wants us to do. Mm. He wants us to lose sight of who our God is, who our Savior is, and who our true enemy is. And he wants us to venomize each other. Venomize? Is that a word? Uh Yeah. Ooh, enemy eyes. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Dude, but, you... but you can read this and be like, Paul, don't you understand? Yes, Paul understands. Your kings, pray for your kings. And you can, uh, Pope, oh my gosh, I had it pulled up. Pope Francis, it was like three years ago. He had a great quote about this. Oh, what did I do with it? It's right here somewhere. Hold on just a second. Just a second, Father Peter. It's right here. Okay, here it is. Um, Pope Francis. <laughs> I was trying to come up something real quick. Okay, it says, he, it, here's a, a homily he gave. It said, a good Catholic doesn't meddle in politics, quote unquote. Pope Francis says, that's not true. This is not a good path. A good Catholic does meddle in politics, offering the best of himself so that those who govern can govern. But what's the best that we can offer those who govern? Prayer. That's what Paul says. Pray for all people and for the king and for all in authority. But Father, that person is wicked. He should go to hell. Well, pray for him. Pray for her so that they can govern well and they can love their people and they can serve their people and that they may be humble. A Christian who does not pray for those who govern is not a good Christian. A person who does not pray for those who govern is not a good Christian. Wow. But Father, how will I pray for that person, the person that has so many problems? Well, pray that the person might convert. I mean, he's pretty blunt. He's like, that's a stupid argument. But right. they're terrible. They should go to hell. We'll pray for them. Pray for their conversion. I mean, this should be a no brainer, but it's one of those things, and I've heard people get so worked up about this passage. Paul's another one in Romans 15, where he talks about respecting and submitting to those in authority. Well, you can actually have the freedom to be okay with those in authority, even if they're terrible, because you know that ultimately God is the authority. Right. And so I can live with whatever gets thrown at me because I know God is God, and they are not, and I am not, but God is. And therefore, I can actually have some peace and some freedom to pray for our president, to pray for the political candidates, to pray for all these people. Even if I disagree with them vehemently, adamantly, I know that God is God and they are not. Right. So things are okay. But we forget that so easily. And we make it, like you said, everything you hear on the news and on TV and on Facebook is it, the, the, it is the disaster of all disasters. And the world is coming to an end because of that person or this person, depending on who's bullying us from one day to the next. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Which we're no different than it was in Paul's time. You, the Caesars were, were terrible. I mean, the bloodbath of the Christian faith, but then Tertullian comes and says, No, the blood of the martyrs is actually the seed of the church. God is not thwarted by people who come after his people. God is still God. Yep. Anyway, that's um lots we could say about that. And that takes us to the gospel.
1: It does. I uh I just I just look around <sighs> and like one thing that I always want to remember, I think it's important for us to remember is that all news is storytelling and storytelling is a dramatic structure. So this is true. So what's, what happens is that people are always looking for who's the enemy. Yeah. What's the fight? Yep. What's the direct thing that the person is trying to accomplish and how is it being thwarted? So it's it's it, i mean it's it's just all drama television whether you're looking at news or you're looking at stories it's all drama and like it's it's really hard because as a people we, we're really disposed to need that drama i mean and 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 that and that can be really hard when we are actually trying to maintain it's important to understand and to know what people are saying but yeah. i think i think you're right on we got to pray
0: well and you we got to pray just to make it today you got to pray Pray. Pray. The, the schema you just set up um, As far as understanding storytelling Is a perfect lead in to the parable That we get this week Trying to figure out the questions that you asked mm. Are exactly the questions that we need to be Asking about this parable can you repeat those again Do you remember what you just said it was profound
1: yeah, uh, uh, what they are are we need? <laughs> no, I can't. Okay, I can't. I, they I, were I, really good though. But oh, I mean, yeah, yeah, an enemy to fight, a, a particular goal to accomplish. Um, yep. uh, you know, co- uh, like the we need a protagonist and antagonist, advocate, false advocate. Yep. I mean, you,
0: you there. There's. I mean, it's just dramatic story. It's just storytelling. So that's the questions. Those are the kinds of questions we need to ask with this parable. So the parable we get this Sunday. Is I'm slowly becoming more and more convinced this is the most difficult parable Jesus gives. Because I don't, and I don't claim to understand it. This I've is the parable of digging. the
1: dishonest steward, in case you haven't read it before. So, the
0: dishonest steward, here's the summary. Basically, Jesus says, okay, there's a rich man, he had a steward. So, a guy, basically, a slave who was in charge of all of his property. So, this would have been, um, you know, white collar slave, in basically. O- oikonomos? Oikonomos. Um, is that what the word it says in Greek? Let, let me let me get there. Oikonomos is um. What English word do we get from oikonomos? Economy. Economy, right? Oikonomia. We talk about the the economy of salvation, right? Right. So oikonomos. If you break those two apart, it's actually an interesting term. Do you know what oikos means? Um, no. It means house, literally a home, or oh. a house. Nomos, you know what nomos means? Name. Nope. Deuteronomos. Oh, uh, uh, law. Law or rules. So, oikonomos, oikonom, oikonomia, means the house rules. Oh. So, this is the one who holds to the house rules, who governs the house.
1: Oh. That's
0: what that word means. And that's where we get the word oikonomia. And why the economy of salvation is not just... I mean, what's an economy? An economy is an exchange of, of goods and services, right? Right. The economy of salvation is God giving us his graces and us giving ourselves back to him. It's an exchange of graces and ourselves. Yeah. But governing all of it as the house rules. God says, this is how I want you to live. That is why salvation is an oikonomia. And anyway, so that, that's a much bigger. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's kind of cool. Welcome to my house. So this guy is, um, and we, we we throw in the word slave um, in the old, in, in the scriptures. This guy is a slave. but But slavery in the ancient world in Jesus' time is different than what we conceive of slavery today. So specifically thinking about the earlier part of our, our nation's history, the ugly path. This is not an ethnic thing. This is not a um, skin color thing. It's nothing like that. It's more an economic. It's thing. all economics. And actually there were people who would sell themselves into slavery to try to get a job like this guy had, which is kind of endangered servitude. But I mean he's living he's living the good life. He's going, he's doing business, he's, you know, living in a nice place. He's probably eating fancy meals with his master. Like he's living a pretty good life. He is still indentured to the, his master in a certain sense, so there is a kind of slavery, and there was abuses of that. I mean, it's not this isn't good, but it's not quite the same. It's not this ethnic thing. I'm going to pick on this group of people. It's different than that. Right. It's debt. It's ec- it's economics. So this rich guy had a steward, and um, it was reported to the rich guy that the the steward was squandering his property. We don't know exactly what this guy is doing. We don't know exactly how the master found out. But somehow this guy is cheating his master. He's either squandering his property or he's misappropriating things or he's just really lousy at his job. We're not sure. But he's doing something that's bad. Rumor has come to this man. That he finds this out and this is what happens. So he summons the servant and he says, what is this I hear about you? Prepare a full account of your stewardship. What is this I hear about you is actually an idiom. Oh, I got to back up. See, I already okay. forgot something. Okay. What we can't forget, and I mentioned this at the very beginning of the podcast, this parable comes hot on the heels of the prodigal son story. Yes. And, you know, it was in the Middle Ages that some poor monk had to go in and try to create chapter divisions and verse divisions. But in the original scriptures, it's all just the scriptures. There's no chapter divisions. There's no verses. So originally, you'd have been, you know, in our minds... We create this break. Okay, chapter 15 is the prodigal son and the lost and found. Now, chapter 16 is this parable about something else. And
1: chapter so, 17 is Lazarus and the and the rich man.
0: But we create a false break. Right. Because in the beginning, this is all one continuous narrative. There is no break, chapter division, between the prodigal son and this guy. And the argument has been made that you really can't understand this parable without the prodigal son. And if you think about it, there's all these parables. So, first of all, think Parallels. about the prodigal— What did I say? Parables. Whatever parallels. So each story has a noble master who ex- demonstrates extraordinary grace to a wayward underling, right? The father demonstrates this huge grace to his prodigal son. The the master in the story exudes this huge grace to his lousy servant, right? Um there is both stories contain Uh, a really bad either son or steward who wastes the master's resources in some way. Each story contains um, a son or a steward in this case who throws himself on the mercy of the noble master or the father. Okay. And both parables deal with broken trust and the problems that result from it. So the parallels are are pretty striking, especially if you take out that chapter division, you're like, oh, yeah, these actually are meant to be read together. Right. They're almost juxtapositions of one another. And the thing that I find frustrating about reading and the research I was doing on this parable is that people kind of just, they either, so basically this guy is approached by his master. He, oh, I want to tell that, I want to go through the pieces, but just to get you guys, catch you guys up. It's because you've probably heard it before. Or you've heard it mass before his master says, you've cheated me. He doesn't give a defense of himself, but then he goes and he, he cheats him even more and he goes to his debtors and he cancels the debt so that all the debtors will be in favor of him. And then his father, his, his master finds out that he's cheated him yet again and he praises him. He's like, well, you're certainly a crafty little buddy. Yeah, and, 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 and then people like, of
1: the kingdom of heaven should be more like you. <laughs> right. And you're like,
0: what? And all the commentators are like, well, Jesus is just really proud of his shrewdness and Jesus thinks that it's good to be crafty in ways like that. Let's move on to something else. That's, that's what all the commentaries I read are saying, which we're missing something because Jesus is not, I can't imagine Jesus is um, highlighting dishonesty. I mean, this is a lousy, cruddy, dishonest, dishonorable steward that Jesus seems to be holding in this high esteem.
1: Now, what if, what if, what if here's a different paradigm shift? Like what if rather than just him, like what if he's praising the merciful nature? Because, I mean, like, that's actually, like, something that I, I want to look at in, oh, yeah. in, as, we're, as we're talking. Is oh, like, yeah. Is like, what is the mercy here?
0: This is where the story, this is the thrust of the story. Forget about the steward for a little while. The story, just like the prodigal son, is really not about the son. It's more about the father and the father's mercy. This parable is really not about the dishonored steward as much as it is about the graciousness and mercy of the master. And that's where we lose it. And that's where we lose kind of what's going on. So right. actually, Julian the Apostate, you remember him? I don't. Julian the Apostate, he was a Caesar. He was a very, very bad guy, basically in the early Christian world. And Julius the, Julian the Apostate used this parable as his primary text to claim that Jesus' followers were taught to be liars and thieves. And that everyone in the Roman Empire should have nothing to do with them or their teachings. Ooh. He said, this text proves it that Jesus taught his followers to be liars and thieves. Wow. And the Roman Empire should have nothing to do with these people. Let's kill them. Which you can kind of see where he's coming from, well, right? Because you're like, this is a weird story. Yeah, I mean, because the, the the pieces are very strange. But, I mean, So again, uh, think of this as a, an appendix to the prodigal son story. And then what comes right after this parable is a, an, an, an appendix to it. Right. So they need to all be taken together. Okay, so consider to, the story. To a trifecta. Consider the story here. So there's this guy, his master approaches him about squandering or wasting his property or doing whatever. And he says, what is this? I hear about you. Apparently in the ancient world, this is it's idiomatic in the middle East. There's an idiom about what is this? I hear about you, which is basically the way that someone comes and tells someone that they're in big trouble or they're about to get fired or there's, there's big trouble coming. Right? So what is this? I hear about you. He knows that something's up, um, prepare a full account of your stewardship because you will no longer be my steward. Uh, there's a scholar I know called Kenneth Bailey. I don't know him; he's dead. But he, uh, one of the most brilliant scholars, he talks. He he's done more work than anyone I know about putting the gospel stories back in their Middle Eastern context. Mm. And what would Middle Easterners be hearing? What are the cultures? What are the idioms? What's happening in the minds of the hearers that make these things make sense? He, He lived among the Bedouin tribes of the Middle East for decades and taught in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem and really lived and understood these cultures that still in large part exist today. So he has unpacked this. And one of the things, um, when this idiom is used, what is this I hear about you, culturally speaking, the response is always to either give a defense of yourself, well, it wasn't my fault, or the people under me are the ones who wasted it, or I didn't really understand, I made a mistake, or to throw yourself at the mercy of the master. Like, well, look at all the other things I've done for you, or, right. or you know, to do something to defend yourself. It's In like- the Middle Eastern honor culture, you defend yourself, or you throw your, you say something, it's striking again, in the culture in particular, that this guy doesn't say anything. He has no defense to make. He says nothing. It's unheard of that you would say nothing, not even to plead for mercy from your master. What what does he say? He doesn't say anything. He says to himself, well, what will I do? My master is doing all these things. I'm not strong enough to dig a hole, so I don't want to have that job. And I'm too proud to beg. I'm too proud to beg. And the the wording there for being proud to beg, it actually means I don't have the capability to beg because what did you need to have to beg? Well, you had to have some... There had to be something wrong with you. You, you had to have, you know, be missing a limb or, or
1: dude, that's really leprosy funny.
0: or something like that. He's like, well, I don't have any of those things. So basically, nobody's going to give a perfectly healthy person standing on the side of the road There's any money. A, a seminarian friend I have, uh,
1: and uh, and he went to go like be in solidarity with the poor and like beg on the side of the road. And so he was hanging out with some homeless folks, and he had just like a regular shirt on, regular pants, and a cardboard sign, and it just said, in solidarity with the poor, please give. Yeah. And um, and one of the homeless folks came up to him and said, you'll never get money like this at all, and then tore his shirt open. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. That's awesome. And, and, and,
1: and be precisely out of that same... Yeah, same thing.
0: That's the idea, and that's really what he's saying. He's not saying I'm too proud to beg. I mean, the pride might be a part of it. It's just he's like, like nobody's gonna give me anything. Look at me. It's ain't got nothing. I'm a wealthy, you know, relatively wealthy guy, and everybody knows me. And everybody knows who I am. And again, not to mention, I, yeah, I just want to stress this fact that usually there'd be days of negotiation if something like this happened. This guy says nothing except thinking to himself, "Okay, the jig is up. What am I going to do now?" Right. It's just it's it is fascinating culturally speaking. Um, again, what the, what the master says is, okay, I need you to, to give an, what does he say? Um, give an account,
1: render an account of thy stewardship for steward. They may may, may be no longer,
0: which what he's basically saying is go get the books and turn them in. He's fired on the spot is what happens here. He's not saying go balance the books. He's saying, go get the books, bring them back because you're fired. Right. So here's what the steward has. He has probably a couple hours to go and get the books before he turns them into his master to try to figure out something to do in the intermediary. So what does he do? He goes and he gets the books and he hurriedly and this probably took course took place within the course of an hour or two. So what does he do? He calls together some debtors that the master has. The master is obviously wealthy, he has a lot of land, he is a lot of power, you know, so he calls together some debtors. Individually, he has to have them one by one because this can't be a group thing. Individually he calls these debtors in and he says, "No, by the way, the debtors cannot they don't know that he's been fired they can't know that he's been fired or else the jig is not going to work what he's going to do right so they don't know he's fired the master is in or the servant is in this in-between state he's already been fired but he still has the books so sure. he has a little bit of power so he calls these guys together and he says uh, the first he says one-on-one it's got to be one-on-one he says how much do you owe my master and he says 100 measures of oil um he said here's your promise story now sit down and quickly write one for 50 cut it in half 50 measures of oil. It's gigantic. We're talking about about I tried to do the calculations, roughly $40,000 worth of stuff. We're we're talking about a year and a half's wages for a farm worker. Okay, so there's this uh, a Middle Eastern commentator his name is Ibn Al-Tayyib. I'm right. breaking out Ibn Al-Tayyib. Be- and here's what he writes about this, and th- this is this is really significant. He says um take your and this is a somebody from the middle east he's he understands the culture the way the idioms work and he says take your bill sit down quickly and write 50 this means sit down before my master takes the bills from me and write down 50 instead of 100 and as for that extra 50 they will be it will be divided between the two of us after this is all over oh that's what's understood that he's being said so note that he says note that the steward should have safeguarded the rights of his master but rather does with uh, does that which causes half of the debt to be lost, in order to win the debtor as a partner with him in embezzlement, the debtor presumably knows that they're engaging in embezzlement. You, Same with the second guy. Yeah. So that the future debtor cannot lodge a complaint with him, with him against him with the master and notice that the the dishonored steward makes him write it in his own handwriting right he hands it he's like i want this in your writing so nobody's going to trace it back to me it's going to be in your writing and if anybody accuses me or accuses you you're just as guilty as i am because you in your own hand has done have done this mm. so he knows that nobody can go squeal to, on him right so he does this with both the debtors he knows that he's what what is that called um what's the term for that you're sca- not scapegoating. uh blackmailing blackmailing he's blackmailing them basically he's like you're blackmailed you can't say anything because this is in your writing You're my partner in embezzlement and we're splitting the profits so presumably now this is a big amount of money and the second debtor receives a huge amount of money as well presumably now they go back to the village and what do they do they hold a celebration they're partying they're they're. i mean we're talking like 40 grand that they've just earned back and had debt canceled you can bet that the village and numerous people have this so the village has now broken out into celebration they're like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. This windfall for the village, because of what? The generosity of the great master. So the oh. master then finds this out, figures out what the servant has done. He's like, I know what you've done. You've totally embezzled from me. Not not to mention the fact of all these other things that you've done before that. But if I go back to the village and I'm like, you need to rent, you need to give me that forty grand back. Now the village is gonna, you know, he's gonna stop the celebration. Yeah, absolutely. And even if it's not a revolution, they're going to be like, well, what a jerk. <laughs> you know, we, you you were so generous. So what the servant does, basically, here's the point. Everything the servant does, he really puts himself on the line. Everything he does is presuming upon the mercy and the generosity of the master. Hmm. He presumes that once he realizes the villagers are so excited and love and are so thankful for what the master has done, there is no way his master, knowing his master whatever go back and take back the money because his master is too gracious for that. He's too merciful for that. And he can't do anything mean to the servant because he's too merciful and gracious for that as well. All of his dishonesty uh, dishonesty hinges on the fact of his trust in the generosity and the graciousness and the mercy of his master. But here's where the moral of the story comes. This is really complex. It's really complex, but that's where Jesus comes in And he basically said, what does he say? It's basically this idea that if you're faithful in small things, you'll be faithful in big things. Or on the other hand, if you're dishonest in small things, you'll be dishonest in big things. This servant was dishonest in small things. He was unfaithful in the small things. That's what got him fired. Because he was dishonest in the small things, what he should have done was either plead for mercy, say, I'm sorry, try to explain himself. But he takes his small sin and he makes it into a giant sin. He's dishonest in small things, so he's dishonest in big things. But again, the point is really not about the servant, who's a slime ball. <laughs> right. and, and he's going to be safe in the community, because now the community is all involved in the embezzlement. Right. They're all at play. So they, you know, they've got to kind of take him in. And, and what the ancients said and what the Middle Easterners said is they kind of take him in, if only just to keep an eye on him. He's kind of an enemy, but they know what he's capable of. We don't really trust him. So we're going to give him a job just so we can keep an eye on him. Abraham Lincoln was said to be known to bring his enemies closer than his friends because he wanted them close. That's what this dishonest steward is doing. And he knows perfectly well what he's doing. But again, the story is not really about him because it's showing, look, he's totally unfaithful in these little things. He's totally unfaithful in the big things. But the point of the story is not him, it's the graciousness and the mercy poured out by his father. And if this dishonest slimeball of a steward can understand and act upon and risk himself for the graciousness and mercy of his master... What of us? Do we see our God, who is merciful and gracious, any less? Well, I think risk and faith are the same.
1: So they at, are. What, what ends up happening is that, like, are we risking ourselves on the uh, the mercy of God and actually calling that down? But what I find so fascinating, Scott, is that in that the the the, the, stu- the 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 master is the inverse of faithfulness and in the small and the large things, because what you see is here's this guy, small sin turns into a big sin, his small mercy of just firing him saying like, no turns into this gigantic mercy of the the whole
0: town. And that's the, that's the final point.
1: Oh my goodness, Scott. I think that that is, um, I think there's a really, really rich penetration into this, uh, into this parable. I, I just keep on thinking about how, how, the application of the mind to the parable is the occupation of the wise, and I feel wiser
0: having listened to this and, and engaged. And part of the reason Jesus uses parables is because he wants to confuse us, and in our confusion, he wants us to wrestle with it and struggle with it and try to find where the truth is. Yes. Otherwise, he would just say it. Right. God is merciful, period. No, he tells a narrative that he wants us to wrestle with for a while to understand what does that actually mean? Yes. What does that look like? Who am I? How do I fit into all this? So I encourage you guys to go home and wrestle over this. Yeah, and and uh, write promissory notes and, and <laughs> do some embezzlement along Absolutely, the way. Absolutely, if you need to. All right, guys, okay. we'll be—no, don't do embezzlement. No, we don't do that. bad. Our Mar- lawyers are going to be mad at us. We don't have any lawyers. Asterisks. All right, we will be back next week. Have a wonderful 25th Sunday at ordinary time, and um, be merciful as your Heavenly Father is merciful. Amen. The Word in the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.lankyguys.org. See you next week.